Father Harrison, we're back. Back we to are the, back. the purity of clerically speaking. And it's going to be pure for a while, right? It better no, be. No, no guess for at least a couple months. That being said, it did feel more natural because at least you and I were both on the last podcast with the CNA guys. That's true. So it didn't feel as different. And we had to, we, and we have to put can lawyers in their place when we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Though they gotta... sort of put me in my place when we talked about the sacrament of marriage. <laughs> it was, a, it was and, a humbling learning experience for me. And you apparently haven't put your hair in your place. No, I haven't. My hair is very poofy today. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm growing up my hair again, just for funsies. But um, I was able to take a nap today. Uh, praise be God. Uh, and when I take a nap, I'll take um, one, of those, one of those little winter caps. We, you have yep. a name for them. What do you call them? Toques. Toques. I take a toque. And I put it over my eyes as kind of to oh, block okay, out the lights. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, right after my nap, I had to go to uh, Westminster College, which is a real college. Are you and, sure? Uh, we have. We Where's have... the proof? Do you have it? You have a copy of its of its foundational documents? I don't. I, we have an Instagram account. Does that help? No. Well, Instagram's lame. We all know this. For the sake of argument, let's just say I went to the college uh, on Friday afternoons, actually evenings. We have adoration uh, mm-hmm. from seven to eight mm-hmm. in the interfaith prayer room. And so it's kind of neat because, like, what you do as a priest is you bring Jesus to people, right? And you do that at Mass. But there's something kind of neat about literally, like, driving Jesus so he can see other people. <laughs> so I had Jesus right. in my right pocket. I had my monstrance in my car. We drive there. We set up adoration. It's a very simple thing, just a quiet adoration yep. of our Lord for an hour. And uh, students showed up. And it's lovely. It's lovely. It's also, like, a way for me to cheat and get in, get in my holy hour on Fridays. Nice. Because it's, like scheduled scheduled so yeah that's always nice yeah i uh yeah there's two things like i actually just yesterday i went to go visit a parishioner at their home so i was bringing them communion and it's just always uh, when you have like the eucharist right next to your heart like that in your shirt pocket mm-hmm. there's just i just turn off the music i'm like all right jesus we're going to be extra close for the next 10 minutes until i get there and it's awesome yeah it's nice um it is nice but uh yeah i do the same thing we were trying to increase adoration here and i when we have public adoration insofar as i can be there uh, I try to do at least one holy hour when the Eucharist is exposed for a few reasons. A, it's just nice when it's actually a duration. And, and I think it's important for people, parishioners to also like see their priest pray. Yeah, it's true. Right? So it's actually kind of nice. Like this morning, I was like, I woke up, I kind of meandered around the rectory. I was like, oh, I'm going to do my holy hour later. So I'll go outside and read and have a coffee. That's great. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah. Uh, and it's important for people to see their priests pray. But I, I struggle yeah. with that a little bit. Yeah. Because. Why? If if I do that, if I pray, do my private prayer publicly, I'm always kind of aware of people looking at me, and even though it's efficacious for them, it's a little bit difficult for me sometimes. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's why like I don't do it every day, but it's right. just like, like for me, it's like I'd say two or three days a week. I, I'm, you know, and sometimes people come into the church early or whatever, and I'm already there. That's fine, but it's, you know, I just think it's important people to see their priest pray sometimes. Right. Absolutely. Right. Cool. So then you, so you're in Washington with those guys. What did you guys do? Oh right, right. So yeah, I this is one of the more more spontaneous things. I mean, we planned it a little bit a week ahead. A we should bit. have done more planning. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, basically, um, if you guys haven't catch it, check out uh, our last episode of Clerically Speaking, and also check out uh, CNA's editor's desk because we did a kind of a combination podcast with them. They were on our podcast, we were on theirs. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we did this is, one, we, we really like the guys, and we like their perspective. And uh, CNA uh, Newsroom is also a good way to get your news via audio. And so we've been talking a lot about, let's do this sort of thing. So And we're all good friends now. Yeah, we are. We are. Right? We have, a, yeah. we have a, a Twitter DM together, which is, that's what friendship is to me now. Yeah, if you're in a DM exactly. with, a, some, with somebody, that means they're 
their friends in real life. But and, um, and should, can we should we share the name of the of the DM? So um, a quick qualification before you do. Okay. Whenever I'm in a DM, I always give it this ostentatious, like really important sounding name to make myself feel better. So right. with that being said, you want to tell people what we call a DM? Podcasting cool kids. Yeah, right. Because we are the best. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. Anyways. Yeah. You're so, hanging out with them. Yeah. I see I could I had to I I couldn't leave my parish. I had stuff to do unfortunately, so I couldn't get out I couldn't couldn't fly out to the East Coast just for a two hour podcasting gig. Yeah, so for me, it was only a four and a half hour drive, and right. it just worked out schedule-wise, where I could leave in the afternoon and be back uh, in the morning, mm-hmm. and it worked out great. Um, and the and thing was that J.D. Flynn, who's out in Denver, question mark? Yeah, Denver. Yeah, he was in uh, D.C., so it would be easier for at least three of us to be in the same room, mm-hmm. and I wanted to meet J.D. I'd already met Ed, uh, so it was good. It was good. It was exhausting, though, because we started recording at... Oh, maybe like eight, eight thirty, um, Eastern time, yeah. and then we—I yeah. mean, the whole process took about three hours. Yeah, and, because we had to fi- figure out a way to jerry rig me into the room so you guys could all hear me at once. Yes, and yet it not be caught on the audio. And the great—the great solution was putting um, our cell phones <laughs> by their microphones, and that's the audio they used. Is it really? It is. That you is the audio. They it's used. not. It's not okay. terrible. It sounded a little echoey. I was like, when I heard that, I was like, they used the. They use the originating, they use the, the sound through the phone. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> they do a great job, but not yeah. everyone has the same sort of dedication and skill that producer Nick does, you know, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Different gifts, same spirit. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. So it was a good time. Uh, nice. Good hanging out with those guys. And then uh, we're back at it. Uh, yeah. How's, how's, how's your week been going? You don't want to introduce the podcast, I guess. We're, I we're do so want to introduce the podcast. I forgot that that's a thing that we do. <laughs> that is a thing we do. The person who takes the lead when they're done their banter yes. introduces the podcast. You are absolutely right, my good friend, Paul <laughs> Harrison. <laughs> Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Anthony. Uh, I'm Father Harrison. There we go. Now we got a nice transition into my band. Right. right. Before we do that, please consider yeah. donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying for our equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as pre- paying producer Nick a just wage for all he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to Missionaries of Charity. If you donate, you get access to the very exclusive Producer Nick podcast. Very he- salty Producer <laughs> Nick podcast. <laughs> where he reviews and ridicules the previous week's podcast. And it is something to listen to. Nick Pulls I'm no nervous. punches. I'm, I'm nervous about this week's. It's not nearly as bad mine. as last week's where he okay. just like destroyed me, which is fine. It's, he's allowed to do that because I'm mm-hmm. his older brother. And when I visit mm-hmm. him on my day off, I'm going to beat him up. So there it all go. evens out. There we go. Cool. So I uh, I mentioned this on Twitter last night as a little thread. But my life changed one and a half weeks ago. Because one and a half weeks ago you were where? I was here in Port Alberni. Oh, what 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 changed? I got a CPAP machine. Oh right, you have a Darth Vader sleepy mask. Uh, it's more like a Darth Vader nosy mask. Okay, okay. <laughs> it just goes over the nose. Okay, nice, nice, nice. <laughs> does it does it stick up there? Is it like? Does it... No, it no, no, no. It just it fits perfectly over my nose. Actually, it's, it's almost not noticeable. Actually, it's quite uh-huh. well done. Although I remember one morning I woke up. <laughs> There's like this big long tube that pushes the air through into the mask from the machine. So and it's nice and long, so you don't like 
yank it overnight or whatever. Right. <laughs> I woke up one morning cuddling the cord. <laughs> <laughs> Just curled up with your CPAP. Yeah, I was nice like, and oh, cozy. Nice and cozy. So uh, a couple months ago, like I, I remember, I think actually someone mentioned on Twitter today that they remember me mentioning um, how I had talked about how I never feel rested. So I saw my doctor. He, he, so he went and did a sleep test, and it, yeah, I got diagnosed with apnea, which is so my range was I had about twenty non-breath episodes per hour. Yikes! So right. for twenty times in an hour, you were yeah. not breathing. And then through the CPAP, we've learned that my not so there's two types of apnea. There is um, there is constriction where like your tongue or there's a flap of skin in the back of your throat that reduces the ability of air to get through your airwaves. Gross. Or and this is the one I have. Your brain doesn't tell your lungs to breathe. Oh, interesting. Yes, that's the one I have. That's what we've learned now since I've been on the machine. See, the problem is your brain is too busy contemplating the glories of the theology of Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger slash Pope Benedict. Yeah. The uh, sixteenth. Exactly. It has no time for worldly things like breathing at night. It, exactly. I mean, like, do the angels breathe? No. <laughs> Anyways, so I uh, I got on it, and I would say within the first two days, I was like a new man. That's wonderful. I, I'm still getting used to it. Like, sure. I still don't, I don't. I'm, I've not gotten on the full night sleep yet since I've been on it. I wake up every night at like three thirty after I finish a REM cycle because my face is getting air blown into it so sure uh you know there's you, your body's getting used to this but my i've gone down from 19 non-breath episodes per hour to four already much better and they want to get it down to one and my respiratory therapist was saying yesterday you're going to feel even better in a few weeks amazing like, it's going to be even better i'm like this how is this because i got this shit. this is why i'm so happy i feel like i'm 18 again amazing i Except like more faithful. Well, yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And hopefully holier. Um, Like yesterday, I sat in my office for four hours doing admin work. And that's the worst. And I I used to not be able to do it. I couldn't focus. I I couldn't keep my mind. I couldn't focus. I couldn't keep my attention on things. I was always fatigued. I had no energy to do anything at all. And as I was getting more tired, I wanted to hang out with people less and less and less. And I was just retreat inside myself which is weird because i'm an extrovert by nature so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i felt like this um i my prayer life was all over the place because i like i couldn't even get myself like it would take me an hour to get out of bed somewhere like when when jose maria escriba talks about the holy minute i'm like you are crazy man (laughs) this is literally an impossibility for me and i just thought this was all normal right (laughs) and now i'm like that wasn't i just i have attention i have focus i'm able to do things i have energy to do things and everyone's like you look a lot happier i'm like because i am Wow. Like it's, it is literally, I, I don't know, I don't know what to say, but I'm like a new man and it couldn't have come at a better time because, you know, new year, uh, new kind of church year, new activity and then new responsibilities starting to start and then doctoral studies starting to start. And I'm just like, I'm in a good place to do all this stuff now. That's really cool. Uh, see, I'm tempted to, to go see a sleep therapist like that. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid they would tell me, well, first of all, you have to stop drinking so much caffeine. And first of all, you have to try to get into a regular sleep schedule. And I don't want to do either of those things. They don't They don't tell me any of that. They What they did for me is now it's just a take-home test. Oh. So they measure, it measures your, your blood pressure and your pulse. And that through those readings, they're able to determine your breathing episodes. Neat. Um, so that's what they did. I took it home for two days. I brought it back. And he's like, yeah, you've got, you got apnea. And so they don't tell you any of this. Like, well, here's, here's the other thing. I'm drinking less caffeine now because I don't need to. Right. That makes sense. 
I had one coffee today and I'm fine. That's awesome. So like, I mean, and I mean, like I'm out of bed within the first five minutes. I'm in prayer in the church by 7 a.m. usually because I'm up at 6 and I'm going to bed at a more normal hour. I'm just, I don't know. This Life is magical. good. It is magical. And I don't know why apnea has increased over the, these years or whatever, but it has. And, but I'm just very grateful to God that this has come into my life. And I am just so thankful. You know who else didn't drink coffee because it hadn't been brought to Europe yet? Thomas Aquinas. It's time for the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. So here's the thing. What's the thing? I thought you were going to go more with the, because he was overweight, he probably also had apnea. That was the easy joke. And I was like, I'm not going to do that to Father Harrison. I'm not. Uh, okay. It's okay. because it's, uh, so you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's called discernment and prudence and charity. And I have that occasionally. 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 So the Summa Theologica was St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. First up. Oh, there you are. So this is a tweet from at Aaron Stuvek, good friend of mine. And tweet says, Peter is casually scooting around with this. Have we been listening to too much clerical pod? And the picture is of a cute little baby scooting around with a book by Joseph Ratzinger, what it means to be a Christian. And he looks so happy that he's with his book. It is is, adorable. It is a future Ratzinger scholar right there. It is never too early to start reading Ratzinger to your children. It's never too early to have your children listen to Clarity Speaking. That is also true. Start them young. (laughs) Yeah. That face and that picture is how I look every time I open a Ratzinger book. (laughs) In fact, at the mere mention of the name, my my smile grows to that level. <laughs> you have this youthful countenance of joy mm-hmm. as your mind mm-hmm. is enlightened by theological sub- subliminalities. It's it's exactly wonderful. reading Ratzinger makes you like a child. It's great. So the answer is no. You haven't been listening to too much clerical pod. You're doing a great job. In fact, you should double down and listen to more. Definitely. Just listen to the old episodes over again. Give us those sweet sweet clicks. Clerical pod makes happy babies. So exactly. Uh, so uh, this is from Anne at IT Geek CT. I was dizzy from no food on the way to mass. Really dizzy. Ate a half a bag of fruit snacks thirty minutes before mass. Felt better. Told priest after. He said this is no problem. None. Go in peace. God bless our priests. So here, this is where where she's coming from with this is yeah. the norm is that you are to re- you are to fast one hour from food. Uh, and I would say most drinks um, one hour prior to receiving communion. Um, it used to be longer, but that's the norm now. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you're meant to prepare your body to receive this great gift that Jesus offers us. And the reason the priest said it is no problem is simply this. She was getting dizzy. Like she couldn't function. 
she needed to do something. She needed to get her blood sugar up, whatever, who knows. But yeah. she ate something to kind of get things to normal. And that's okay. The church only requires fasting like when you're kind of normal. It, like Even like the fasting rules for Ash Wednesday and Good Friday don't hold in all cases. Like It says like if you're a pregnant mother and you're nursing or whatever, you don't, you're not bound by the fasting rules and stuff right. like this. And it's the same thing here. She was sick in that moment. And so you're not bound by the fasting rules. So I thought, what a beautiful little, because I think sometimes when we're Catholics, we can feel guilty, like, oh my gosh, did I do this? I went to communion maybe, and it's like, shouldn't I have done this? And the priest is like, no, no, you're good, you're good. Yeah. If you can do something that will help you not pass out at Mass, that's great, because mm-hmm. it's awkward when it happens. But also, <laughs> also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but priests have the ability to dispense specific people um, of the fast. Yes, absolutely. So you can't do like a parish-wide, I dispense everyone, but if someone comes to you, you can dispense them individually. And that's also what happened here, so. Yeah, and not just fasts, or not just mass uh, fasting, it's, you know, sometimes you can even dispense people from their Sunday obligation if they feel that they're not going to be able to meet and stuff. But only pastors, not assistants. Uh, I got that power, you don't. You know what, you can can keep that power. (laughs) I'll have it eventually, (laughs) but for right now... Being able to leave my parish and go to uh, <laughs> D.C. for a podcast is a perk I'll take uh, while that's I a pretty nice. That's a pretty nice perk. Yeah, okay. So this one is from uh, William Yearout, at Yearout William. And he says, if working at a parish has taught me anything, is that you need to make it abundantly clear to your family that you want a Catholic funeral, especially if your relatives aren't Catholic. Also, a hidden catechetical crisis is the importance of and reasoning for funeral rites. And I wholeheartedly agree. I don't see this so much in my parish now, but in a previous parishes I've helped out with, you would see like there would be this person who had died who probably walked to mass like every day of their life and their children for various reasons. And this is not in any way to, because um, in a moment of grieving and confusion, there are decisions that are made. So I'm not attacking the people individually, but it's so sad. These people who I'm sure wanted a funeral mass couldn't have one mm-hmm. because their children didn't understand. They didn't write it in the will. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a bummer because yeah. I think a lot of times there's kind of such a fear of death and dying and a fear of grieving that a lot of times people try to do the quickest thing just to get it over with. And even yeah. though it's a painful process – in most circumstances, the healthiest thing is to go through that process just for you, you know, just for um, right. your grieving and your spirituality, yeah. but also, also because offering mass for the dead is the most loving thing you can do for your deceased loved ones. Yep. And that's the second part of it, like the the catechetical crisis of importance of and reasoning for funeral rites. Like, I don't think we talk about this enough. Oh my gosh. And then you hear stuff like, well, the funeral's for the grieving. And I'm like, no, it's actually for the deceased. This is the whole yeah. point. It ha- yes, it has a, an element of comfort for the grieving, but that's secondary to offering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the eternal salvation of a soul. Yeah. I, I think the bigger one is is the sacrifice part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's so this is something I'm encountering more and more. My town is very interesting. Like in the, I'd say the last couple of months, I've been doing a lot of internments. So first, lots of ash burials. Um, which is, I mean, it's good to say at least they're burying them and not like scattering them, right? Right, yeah. Um, which you can't do, by the way. Catholics, you cannot scatter ashes. You have, have to be bury buried. Them. Or yeah. put in a mausoleum. Yeah. Um, so what I often do now is, like, I get just these, I'm like, 
did they have a funeral out of town? They said, no. like my secretary said, no, no, they just want the internment. They maybe had it to so tell her, oh, we had a celebration of life earlier or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what I just do privately now is I just take their name and I just write it down. Okay, please give them a mass intention for this date. And then I'll say a mass for them privately nice, or yeah. at mass or whatever, just because I'm like, you know, these people need the mass. They need a mass said for their deceased soul. That That is the whole point of this. So that's what we I try to do now, at least to try and make up for what hasn't happened. And yeah. it's part and, it, and it's yeah, it, it's going to get worse. It It's going to get worse. Unfortunately, but yes, put it in your will, make it, make it a a qualification for the releasing of your estate that you require a Catholic funeral mass. Good. And these are the conditions of the funeral mass to happen for your estate to be released um, for the inheritance. You can do that. Yep. And also you can like prearrange a lot of this stuff with, with funeral homes. Yeah. Um, You can prearrange and even sometimes even pay for whatever you need for the mass and everything. So all that stuff is important to take care of. Absolutely. So this is from Daniel J. Chin, at Daniel J. Chin. Where in the germ or missile does it talk about how the EMHC should use hand sanitizer? Do you remember a time when we didn't use hand sanitizer? Because I do. I do, too. It happened. I don't know when it started, like, the hand sanitizer thing got so big at masses. Maybe, like, I don't know, 15 years ago? Or I have no idea. I would say maybe not even that long. Like 10 years ago, even, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, so here, here, um, when I got to the parish, one of the first things I did was I got rid of the hand sanitizer. <gasps> but the germs, Father Harrison, don't you care about the health of your people? Yeah, but if you can shake hands with people and you can receive the Eucharist, and you, but okay, you as a sign of peace, you've just shaken hands with a bunch of people, and I'm not talking about the EAMHC. That's and that's a shorthand form for. Extraordinary Minister of Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the EMHC here. I'm talking about just the average Catholic in the pew. You've shaken a bunch of hands. And then you often will go receive Jesus in your hand. Yep. So if you can receive Jesus in your hand, then mm-hmm. your hand is no more or less dirtier than the hand of the person who's giving you the Eucharist. I think that's fair. I think there's a, a deeper thing that we're missing here. That yes. as Catholics... We are one body, and if someone's going to get a disease, I think we should all get it together and all just suffer <laughs> together and offer up that suffering. But, I mean, here's the thing. Like, just wash your hands before Mass. Like, if you're an EMC, wash your hands before Mass. The priest, there's even prayers that mm-hmm. the priest can pray while washing his hands before Mass. Just mm-hmm. do that. Because the, the thing is, I mean, it's not a huge deal. This is not a huge deal. Well, the priest even, he washes his hands during the Mass, too. Right, but I only use a little bit of water. It's very okay. it's very um symbolic when I do it. Um, but, like... When you see all these people like lining up and there's like a pumping of the thing and then there's this yep. rubbing of hands, it's well, just and it's, here it's is, just distracting. And this is the other reason. This is why I got rid of it actually. Okay. When you put it on your hands, it's often A not dried out and yeah. it's a little sticky. Yeah. When you're handling the Eucharist, that means fragments are gonna start sticking to your hand that shouldn't be. Oh yeah. That's no good. And and then and then this is the thing I also don't get. It's they're very keen to clean their hands before the Eucharist, but they're not so keen to remove part particles from their fingers after handling the Eucharist. Do you have an ablution cup by your I tabernacle? Ju- I just got one. Good, good. So the ablution cup, which is a fun little little term, is this usually it's this little little cup. It usually has a little lid on it, and it's by the tabernacle. And it's full that of water. Be by the tab- yeah, full of just regular water. And next to it will probably be a little um 
purificator or a little cloth, and you just kind of dip your hands in there to, yeah. to remove any particles. Yep. And then within the week, somebody will put that down the aquarium. The aquarium is the special sink that goes right into the ground. We do not have a aquarium. If you have a aquarium, you just uh, I I go dump it out. Yeah, I, go, I just I just you know reverently put it into like uh, the the garden bed of the bushes and bury it. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's what you do. You yeah. don't put Jesus Christ into the sewage system. No, that's I, actually, good. I want to get a aquarium, but it's it's actually it's, it's kind of well, it's expensive and it's hard. Just the way the parish they didn't. This is again. This is the thing that just I find baffling. This my parish was built in 1958. So uh-huh. prior to the council, they didn't yeah. build this aquarium into it. Wow, that's that's amazing. Right. So again, it's just it's it just it's it's unique to me, right? So I would like to build one, but I'm not sure. I, I think there might be a way to do it in another room, but I haven't quite figured that out yet. That's a that's a project I'm thinking about still. I like it. Yes. Okay. So next up is a friend of the show. At Tea with Token, who never gets mad at me for imprudent things I say on Twitter, she says, "Husband got a pumpkin spice latte. Please pray for our marriage in this troubling time." I Father offered Harrison, to, I offered to do their annulment paperwork. That's very kind because, like, hopefully it doesn't come to that. But I mean, this is a big deal. So tell I mean, me, this, what is... this should be this should be on the questionnaire part of marriage, <laughs> right? Are you pro or against PSLs? PSLs. Uh, I am – so here's the thing. Sometimes things are good, and you, you shouldn't make a big deal out of them. Mm-hmm. Like if you like pumpkin spice, that's great. A little bit excited about the season for pumpkin spice, that's fine. But because it's become such a meme in the culture, it makes me hate it. Now, when it comes to coffee, I am all about getting a latte. I remember being so offended. I went to a coffee shop at my little parish, and I asked for a latte. And they said, do you want anything in it? And I was like, No. And they're like, okay, one plain latte. I'm like, no, 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 it's not a plain latte. It's just it's a, a latte. latte. Yes. It's just a latte, you know? Um, so I'm just a little bit more, not a huge coffee purist, but a little bit more so. But if right. you like pumpkin spice, if you like, I don't know, something like a little bit of mint in your coffee, that can be nice too. That's fine. But can we just let good things be good? Do we have to make them like a whole thing? Right. What about but your opinion? I- Do you ever drink pumpkin spice? Oh, no, I tried to sip once and I hated it. So this is why I offered my services to them as a couple because mm-hmm. um, it's it's a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal. I, I think I think it's an impediment to ordination. <laughs> I I think I mean I'm pretty sure we called it the Council of Orange for a reason, and I'm pretty because you know pumpkins are orange, and I'm pretty sure there's something in there against PSLs. So um, I am very much against them, and I think they're horrible and. Uh, I, I, I I hear Caitlin's concern. Yeah, absolutely. And all, all the things you said just now were facts and true. No need to fact check us on Clerically Speaking. Just trust we us. Are the, we are the magisterium. We are the magisterium. <laughs> you should be obedient to Clerically Speaking. And on that note, it's time for presbyteral exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral Exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh, it's oh, the best part. Oh, yes. Yes, quite. Yes. Quite. So before you go, I just got to say, it's just nice to know that for the next while, we can just do either index or presbyteral exhortations that we can dispense with pastoral councils. 
Indeed. Even I mean, though it's the, the, my favorite bumper, and it's sad that we yeah. didn't have the bumper in our last episode, but that wasn't Nick's fault. He sent them the bumper, they didn't use it. But it is by far my favorite bumper because it is so So this so is just offensive. proof that Nick is a better editor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. But hmm. let's talk about obedience, Father Ooh. Harrison. All right. So uh, because, because uh, Editor's Desk is still on my mind since it was so recent for us, I want to play a game of greater than, less than. Okay. And it's a horribly unfair question, but that's what makes it fun. The Evangelical Councils. Oh, man. Okay. The Evangelical Councils are... Oh, my God, my brain. Poverty, um, chastity, obedience. Poverty, chastity, obedience. Okay. Greater than, less than. Rank okay. them. Uh, it's going to go... Ugh. I'm going to say chastity is greater than obedience is greater than poverty interesting so because it's a totally unfair question and they're all i think pretty equal but i i'm tempted to actually put obedience at the top particularly now because it okay. seems to be so misunderstood right um, okay they're all related of course but right. let's talk about uh obedience because i know about you uh we don't make uh promises of poverty right no and we only no. make a promise and we only make a promise of celibacy not chastity which is a weird canonical distinction. Right. I mean, it's very, it's imp- I guess because it's implied right. that chastity is for all, right? Right, right. Yes. You yes, don't need exactly. to like make a <laughs> particular promise for something that every Christian is obliged to do. Exactly, exactly. But a lot of people, when they're either first discerning or if they're thinking about the priesthood or religious life, I think the thing they think is the most difficult is celibacy. Do you think the most difficult thing is celibacy? I don't think so at all, but I think it's a very fruitful one, actually. But uh, sure. it's um, it's interesting. It's always one I thought I would it would be like a big struggle or whatever. But it, it really because I was like, you know, you're always afraid like what's loneliness going to be like. And I said, I'm like, no, it's really, it's really not been too much of a problem. Yeah, same. Like certainly. Uh, I mean, uh, so just to make a quick distinction: yeah. celibacy is a state of not being married. Yeah, and chastity is a state of living out your life in a virtuous way, whatever state of life you're in. Yes. So that's the kind of purity sort of thing. Yes. And I think everyone, until like two minutes before you die, um, chastity is always going to be a temptation there. So certainly that's a mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But but the whole celibacy thing in, in my life as well, like for the most part, that's not the thing that's on my mind most days. You know, you're no, just going fact, out and doing yeah. You meet families and stuff, you're like, hmm, celibacy has its perks. It does. It does. So definitely family. Life as as family says perks too, right? I'm not right, trying right, to integrate right. it, obviously, folks. You know that. But, yes. but that's, I mean, that's yeah. really important. Like yeah. family life has its blessings and its crosses. That's why it's so important for us to be friends with families because you see both of those aspects. And while you see that it's beautiful, you also see it's not some eternal paradise. We're all waiting for that um, when Jesus comes again. So absolutely. But I think if you ask, and this has been my case, if you ask most parish priests, which one is the most difficult, I think they'll say obedience. Mm-hmm. Because the most difficult thing for a parish priest particularly is when you, you know, you've made a home in the parish, you've entered into the lives of these families, you've done your best to bring them closer to Jesus Christ, there are connections there, and then you get the letter, you get the phone call, and it's time to move, and you just have to move, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's to a more difficult parish assignment, maybe it's just difficult because change is difficult, mm-hmm. but that is the most difficult thing obedience like subverting mm-hmm. my will to the will right. of the bishop right right yeah but i think also and, and like, can i, can oh, I yeah, also yeah, just one thing in there too it's and i 
one thing I'm coming to experience more and more that while it's it's it's, it's a fundamentally different way of expressing itself there is obedience towards your bishop and the church and the pope etc and the magisterium and there's also an obedience if you will to your parish yeah right love, like, like just love demands an obedience right it, it, and it demands a, a patient following with the people who you serve and it'll be what i mean not by like doing their will at all times but listening carefully to their needs and sacrificing your own will and your own desires to provide for what they need in this moment in time. So like when you are getting a phone call at two o'clock in the morning to go to the hospital, that's an obedience to your people. Yeah. Like Cause that. I would prefer to sleep. Yes, indeed. Right? Um, but I sacrificed that good for the good of my people. And that, that like, for me, that's where I've been. And I, and I think that's an equal struggle for priests that we maybe don't talk about sometimes the mm-hmm. obedience, the obedience of love towards your people. It's something I, you know, we mentioned this on the podcast a few weeks ago when we were talking about like loving your parishioners and stuff like that. And this is the thing I've just really coming to terms with, like that I need that I've been trying to grow in my obedience to my people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about obedience. Cause I mm-hmm. think this doesn't just apply to priests. Obviously we, you know, have more, a deeper experience of it as mm-hmm. priests and we're coming from it from that perspective. But um, the evangelical councils are for every Christian. Right. But the thing is, with the difficulty the church is facing, particularly right now, when you have so many bishops who um, are doing wrong things, or seem to be covering stuff up, or seem to be, or proven to... Or starting synods against the Pope's will. Yeah, exactly. Who the hell knows what's going on with the German bishops? It's horrifying. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. No, it's true. It's like, so, I mean, I don't want to get into that right now, because I'm not... Read up on enough, but like, yeah, that's cause for concern. Yeah. Um, so with all of that going on, I think sometimes um, the obedience gets thrown out with the bathwater, but also just uh, the Western mindset in general is very anti-obedience. I think particularly in America, yep. but I think a Western mindset in general. So let's kick this off with a quote from Benedict. Uh, he says, in an age in which emancipation is is regarded as the true heart of redemption and freedom appears as the right to do everything I myself want to do and only that, the concept of obedience is, so to speak, anathematized. Mm -hmm. There's such a focus on what I want to do and my freedom and a misunderstanding of freedom that... The very idea of obedience is repugnant to us. And you see this very much in popular culture. Whenever someone's asking you to be obedient in popular culture, it's always big brother or some tyrant. Obedience means never thinking for yourself. Obedience yeah. means you know doing stuff blindly. And this is the popular idea right. of obedience uh, yeah. in the culture. right? And now. Yeah. So I, lately I've been reading um, – Fiona Hawley is going to be very happy about this. I'm reading a lot of Giassani. She's been waiting for the day for me to drop that name. Uh, okay. So Giassani, Romano Gia, uh, Luigi Giassani, the uh, founder I mean, of I like them already. I don't know who he is, but I love the name. Luigi Giassani. Giassani. Bada bada. Bada bing. Bada boom. Bada ba. Very good Italian, right? Uh, exactly. He is the founder of Communion Liberation, or as Father Josh Meyer likes to call him, the juice. Uh, the juice. The juice. <laughs> And he's talking about this idea of obedience, right? That this I've been reading a lot of his stuff actually on obedience, and he puts obedience in concert with the uh, with the theological virtue of faith. 
and he says like we we always look at this idea of freedom as this ability to choose for myself like benedict's talking about right i want i have the right to do everything as myself as i want to do but he says freedom is actually not created just to exercise my own will for myself at all times it's actually like kind of trying to face reality as it really is and to mm-hmm. choose the true thing that brings life so really, really freedom is the ability to choose for something outside of myself that's greater than myself not to choose my own will and my own things i want to do which means that he says like this is like a following and this is where obedience kind of comes in i'm sorry if i got ahead of you there but I just had no that was good that was yeah. good yeah because obedience and freedom are actually pretty related very obedience related, yeah. helps us to become free, uh, free. and even it's funny things even i say obedience makes us free yeah. like that sounds like something out of 1984 uh but it really is one of these paradoxes of the church that brings about a greater truth Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think just a quick aside about the nature of the church, because oftentimes obedience and the church, I think these things are are wrapped up. And there's a tendency for people to separate the visible and invisible natures of the church. So there's this idea that the church is kind of this purely spiritual thing. And the problem with that, if the church is purely spiritual, there's a temptation to make the church whatever I want it to be. So... Mm-hmm. And this is the right in line with the whole freedom is choosing whatever I want. If you take on that attitude, you can listen to your parish priest or not listen to them. You can listen to your bishop or not. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, make the church what you want it to be. But the church is both visible and invisible. And just like you can't separate the invisible and visible natures of Christ, he's human and divine, you can't separate the visible and invisible natures of the church. Mm-hmm. The church has a body. Mm-hmm. And you have to be obedient to that body. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- this is what Benedict says. Christian faith is never just spiritual and inward, never just a subjective or a personal private relationship with Christ and his word, but is entirely concrete and ecclesial. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying about the denial of mediation. Right. When you make something purely spiritual, when you refuse to enter into the incarnate world and the incarnate word as well, then you make things about just yourself. Right. And what, what the church does is it pulls you out of yourself into this, into the real reality. Mm-hmm. And the reason why obedience is so important is because of the fall and because of Jesus Christ. The original sin was an act of disobedience. Adam and Eve, in their pride, were disobedient to God. And there's this whole way of looking at redemption as the obedience of Christ. So uh, Benedict says, the sublime Christological obedience, which reverses the disobedience of Adam, finds concrete form in ecclesiastical obedience. Okay, so let's we're going to break that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read for a second from, from Scripture. This is from 2 Philippians 6. There's, there's, no, 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 no. There's only what? one Philippians. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Philippians, Philippians chapter two, two verse six. Uh, yeah, five, five to five to eleven, right? Five to eleven. There we go. Yeah, it's yeah. the uh, the hymn in Philippians, yes. very famous. Yes. Um. So this is what it says. This is this is Paul talking. Have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, found in human appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. 
Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. It's a beautiful little hymn. Yeah. Um, we pray it every Thursday night. No, Saturday night in the evening prayer. Yes, it's pretty often. So if you yeah. do the office, you're, you're very familiar with this hymn. Yeah. But the first sin is an act of disobedience that brings about death. The obedience of Christ is an act that he performs unto death, but brings life to us. So we think about it this way. There's a lot of different ways to look at redemption, but this is one avenue to kind of approach it. Jesus Christ was always faithful to the Father. If you look at human beings from the time of Adam and Eve, all throughout salvation history, there's constant disobedience, a turning away from the goodness that God offers for these other perceived goods, these lesser goods. There's always a refusal to accept God and who he is and searching for these other gods. Jesus Christ was always obedient. And you see this so often in the scriptures. And when you hear Jesus Christ say things like, it's not my will, it's the Father's will. Right. It, he's teaching us obedience through his very being, what he's right. saying and what he's what he's doing. And he's showing the heart of God. Right. Speak more on that. Well, just Jesus makes visible the Trinitarian relationships. So his obedience as the word of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, he is showing that this idea of obedience um, is actually at the heart of God. Like whatever God, Jesus reveals about himself and who he is in relationship to the Father reveals mm -hmm. something at the heart of who God is, right? It's what John Paul II talks about in Gaudium et Spes, right? That Jesus reveals vistas to us previously unknown. And, and so this idea of obedience that Jesus lives is really, it's actually revealing to us something about how God's heart is. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesus Christ, in becoming incarnate, he kind of pulls into himself all the disobedience of man, and he begins to untwist it through his life. Because mm -hmm. very often, the times when we are disobedient, it's when we're uncomfortable. We try to do it to avoid suffering or perceive suffering or just, to be honest, in daily life, just being uncomfortable. So you have this, this image and this reality of Christ in the garden. His body doesn't want to go through what he's going to go through. He knows it's going to be painful, but he's obedient to the Father whom he loves. And that 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 kind of uh, conflict is what was why he, he sweats blood. So he's taking on all the disobedience of man that's ever happened. And because he is man, because he's entered into humanity, he can finally bring all of humanity obediently back to God. Right. So he's on the cross. And he's been perfectly obedient his entire life. And what has he got for his obedience? His friends never understand him. The mm -hmm. ones he loves, and, and that's including the Pharisees, continue to persecute him. They continue to be petty and pathetic and legalistic. But he still continues to love them. He still continues to be faithful to God. Now they're killing him. They're mocking him. And even in all of this, he's obedient. And he experiences in that moment, even though he's being obedient, He's still the suffering servant. Mm -hmm. It seems as if to the world that he's being punished for his obedience. And he cries out, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And right. this is something a priest once, once told me. It's almost as if God is reminding, Jesus Christ, who is God, is reminding God the Father of his obedience. Right. Like, I've done all of this, why are you forsaking me? And that's, that's part of the spirit of that psalm. God is always faithful. God the Father is always faithful. So how is he going to be faithful to his son? He's faithful to his son in a way that we could never have imagined. 
because Christ dies, but God continues to be faithful to his son who is obedient to him. He's faithful by doing something radical, not by simply plucking him off the cross, Mm -hmm. but by raising him from the dead. Mm -hmm. And as he raises Jesus Christ from the dead, he's raising all of humanity in this new state of being. Mm -hmm. And it's because of that obedience and God's faithfulness that have met on the cross and through the resurrection that we are saved. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we're saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ. Right. And Not this just in a sense, more, really and truly. Really, really and truly. Right, right, right. I, I only say in a sense because I think there's other ways to look at it as well. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is definitely a central way to look at it. Yeah. And this is why if you read any of the saints, their focus, especially in religious life, their focus is so much on obedience. Obedience is worth more than any kind of um, well, sufferings you may undergo. Obedience is worth right. more than any kind of uh, fasting you can undergo because it most perfectly imitates the life of Jesus Christ. Well, so that's look, why obedience as a principle is so important. Right. Look at Mother Teresa's life, right? Whose feast day was yeah. yesterday, right? Uh, she made that vow to God that she would refuse God nothing. That's, that's, mm-hmm. a, that is, it's in a way, it's actually not a new vow in a way, right? It's just a living out in a more deeper way her vow of obedience. Right. So what does this mean for us? So we're going to go back to Benedict. Yeah. And when he talks about being obedient to the church as imitation of Jesus Christ being obedient to the Father. He says in this, I am not being obedient to a Jesus whom I or others think up of out of scripture. In that case, I would be worshiping, I would be obeying my own favorite ideas and the picture of Jesus Christ I had imagined I would be worshiping myself. No, obeying Christ means obeying his body, obeying him in his body. And this is the crux of it. If obedience is a vague thing, if we're not obedient to an incarnate person, Mm -hmm. then the temptation and the fall is often that I'm only obedient to my own ideas of Christ. I'm only obedient to my own ideas of the church. In a sense, I'm only obedient to myself. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I am worshiping myself. Right, right. So I want to break this open on a, I don't know, I'm beginning beginning more pastorally. Yeah, good. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) Uh, Let's break this open and how this plays out. I mean, I, don't, I hope I don't think I don't think I'm kind of getting ahead of you here. No, um, I do want to break this out into like practical like, stuff. Yeah, well, just like in parish life, right? Because so yeah, there there are various. So that I guess we, we talked a little bit about this in our episode of Magisterium, right? The different level, levels of obe- the obedience of faith and what that looks like. Um, that so that means, for example, when the Pope speaks, especially when he's speaking as an act of teaching, we always mm-hmm. are to give it the benefit of the doubt at the very least. Um, when the when the magisterial act, acts are happening through teaching documents from the church, etc., uh, again we give it the obedience of faith, which means I presume the best of the documents, etc. Yeah. Um, and the same thing happens with I would then we have to get down more local. Okay, I obey a bishop. So when a bishop makes a policy which is within his rights to make in his diocese, because the law of the church allows bishops to make certain policies and even certain liturgical norms, it is our duty to obey this. Yes. So, for example, the germ. Now, people might disagree what that the germ allows this, and that's a reasonable debate to have. But mm-hmm. the germ does state that the local bishop or the local bishops' conference have the rights to determine certain postures at certain times in the liturgy. Correct. Now, I've heard of bishop. Like this is where it gets interesting because I've heard sometimes of bishops instituting like standing at the at the uh, consecration. Well, the germ actually doesn't allow that, right? right. So there's a higher authority that overrides the bishop 
-hmm. So there, you would actually be right to disobey the bishop, <laughs> right? Right. So, but, but but I guess what I'm saying though is like like I but I see the opposite often. So like in mm -hmm. our diocese, um, we kneel at the consecration, and after the mystery of faith, we stand, and we're standing until the time of communion, and after people receive communion, they go back to their pew and do their own thing, um, right. which is a pretty normal thing in in Canada. Um, but some people don't like that. They're like, well, I want to kneel until until I receive until the Lamb of God, and they mm -hmm. and they and they kneel even though the bishop has issued a decree here. Yeah, and that's where that's not obedience. Mm -hmm. That is actually saying I want to do my own thing. This is not a matter. These are legitimate things a bishop has a right to. Yeah, to do. And then so that's your Episcopal side, right? And then again, this is where I think it it gets a little tricky. When it gets to the realm of the priest, <laughs> yeah, it does get tricky because it's less it's less clear in a lot of the documents about um, priests and parish. I think so. This is where I this is where I, I think you can hold the lines a bit because there is a truth that priests actually do not have the charism of, of speaking for the magisterium. That is a charism reserved just to bishops, right? So we we kind of express what the bishops teach, right? But. And so we and a, a, a priest is a cooperator with the bishops, right? Correct. Yeah. However, a bishop though does he does place guys in parishes and he gives them certain authority, like as as a, as assistants or as pastors, he gives them certain authorities in those parishes to do certain things. So when you're a pastor, you have the uh, you have the grave responsibility of making decisions for the good of the parish and the good of the future of the parish based on all the circumstances that you lead. And I think it's always important that a pastor has to listen as much as possible, mm -hmm. different things, but he also has to make prudent decisions. And where I, I, I come up against it a lot, it's, it's, I find it's, it's interesting how sometimes uh, parishioners, this is, where, this is where if a priest is making a pastoral decision that is not like, there's no ill intent, there's no evil, no malice to it, then we ought, I think there, there ought to be obedience. Yeah. I think absolutely because um, when you became a pastor, you took uh, you took a vow. Yeah. Um. Uh. You what's it called? The oath of fidelity. Yeah. And in that, you would have said something along the lines of, "With Christian obedience, I shall follow what the bishops, as authentic doctors and teachers of the faith, declare, or what they, as those who govern the church, establish. I shall also faithfully assist the diocesan bishops, so that the apostolic activity." exercise in the name and by the mandate of the church may be carried out in communion with the church. So one, that really emphasizes just how important the bishop is to the diocese, mm -hmm. but you've made a promise to follow that. Right. If you've made a promise to follow that, then that the, the parishioners' obedience to their bishop is very much related to their obedience to you. Right. I think that's a very easy connection to make. And, I, and I, it's just very interesting that that is, that is, I see it a lot. I'm not just talking about where I'm at now. Just, just generally as a priest, um, I see a lot of this. Well, no, this is this is what I think is best for the parish. And if the priest isn't doing this, well, then he isn't. Uh, he's not a good priest. Or, or, and I'm like, right. most priests when they're making decisions aren't doing it contrary to the communion of the church. Mm -hmm. It's very rare. And if they are, they need to be called out about that. Absolutely. Yes. But if they're not, you speak your piece. But in the end. The priest's decision, because here's the thing, like, I think this is something people don't understand sometimes. Yeah. And I, like, my next step, when I do my next episode, I want to talk about, like, pastoral ministry in general. Um, because, like, it's something I'm starting to experience more is when a priest is making a decision, he hears you, 
But guess what? You are not the only concern he has to take into account. Yeah, shock. He has to take into account the future of the parish. What are things going to look at five, ten years down the line? Mm-hmm. He has to take into account demographics, finances. What are we able to do as a parish in terms of getting people forward? And they, and as you get more pastoral experience, you start to learn about the virtue of patience and actually how it's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. And so you might want something right away, and the priest might say, this is a good thing, but not now. Right? Yeah. And we need to learn to be obedient to that. Because here's the thing. If you love priests, you want to make their life easier. Because if you make their life easier, <laughs> they can do more good for your church. If yeah. all you do is resist and revolt and argue and make and come at you about petty things all the time, you are going to wear them down to the point that they're going to because that they're not going to want to do it. Now, this is the other danger. This is where I, I do see the danger because I think it, it, it did go the pendulum swung a little to the extreme a while ago, like in the in the in the early 20th century, where where we it's pretty much pray, pay and obey to the point like you just do what the priest says. and You don't even speak. Right, right, that's not healthy, and that did, because that that inculcated a culture of power amongst the clergy that opened us up to things like the sex abuse crisis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I, there is a danger there. That's why I think a, the sign of a good priest is one who will listen, but he will say, "This is the judgment I've made," and you might not agree with it, but this is what I have to do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a couple things there. Yeah. One, yes, like obedience does imply communication mm-hmm. and it's important to communicate with these with people and so often what happens in a parish is that i don't like what or i don't like or i don't understand what the priest is doing i read this blog that says he shouldn't be doing this therefore i'm going to follow my conscience and disobey the priest right that's not obedience no you know you haven't brought this that's, to the priest that's, that's actually, in a charitable that's way that's actually protestantism yeah it is like i know a story of a parish where they were changing up the the formation program and some of the people who helped out at this parish and the pre-formation program didn't like the change-up. Right. So they held a secret meeting saying, don't volunteer to be catechist for this new formation program because it's going to be bad. Right. Like, stuff like that happens in parishes, and yeah. that's something you need to bring to confession. Yeah. Like, that's definitely disobedience. Yeah. So I think it's important to have some humility and going to the, the priest and saying, hey— I feel like, or I've read that the church doesn't allow this, yeah. and I'm confused. So just tell me your reasoning behind it. Is it? And then you go from there and from that conversation. Yeah. But if it's one of these things that's that's an option, if it's one of these things that's a matter of of prudence or of personal uh, judgment on behalf of the pastor, mm-hmm. and you don't like it, it's now in that time you can participate in a small way in the suffering and obedience that Jesus Christ had to the Father. Because here's the that thing. That is hugely beneficial for your soul. Because here's the other thing. Somet- yeah. there's The priest sometimes will make a wrong decision, even though it's not against the communion of the church. Right. right? They, just they might just make, right a, they might make a bad decision. Yeah. But also then trust the grace of God to do his work still. Yeah. Because in the end, it's like God makes it all right, and his grace kind of comes over it in the end. And it's and it, to be okay with that. Like, um, um it, that's yes, it's a suffering because it's crucifying of your own will, and, and yeah. you often find later on that this thing that was so important to you at the time actually probably actually wasn't that big of, a, and you're actually grateful that you didn't fight this or whatever, you know. Right. Uh, it, it's when like I, I can see like you know if a priest came in his first day in the parish and he changed everything, like literally everything, you know what that would be that would be too much, right? Like there, it's, yeah. it's a give and take. There has to be a di- there has to be dialogue really and truly. Because you need to learn the culture of your parish. Like I, I've recognized, like maybe I did a few things a little too fast when I got here, 
Mm-hmm. But I've, you know, I've made it very public that I recognize this and everything. Like, and that's the thing. I think it's also like we've talked about before. It's important for priests to recognize publicly even. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm still yeah. learning this. There's no school for pastoral work. So yeah. uh, it's not seminary, actually, believe it or not. So um, I'm sorry. But we'll move on. We'll try and do better. And, and I, this is I appreciate your patience as I learn. Um, right. And that's, those are important things, but it's, 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 and, and like actually Giasani talks about this when he's talking about obedience, that to have obedience, you need, you need, um, you need humility of heart. Like the, the, Absolutely. the, the virtue attached with this is humility. Right. right? Good. And I want to add two more things yeah. as we wrap up. Yeah. So one, and it's important to, you talked about the different ways that the priest needs to be obedient, but Benedict adds that there must be a common obedience of all to the word of God. Right. And to the way he is presented to us in the living tradition of the church. So we are all obedient to the word of God and yeah. how it's presented to us in the church. Okay? And this shared obligation, the fact that we're all under obedience with this, I'm adding some commentary, mm-hmm. is also a freedom that all share. It protects us from arbitrary actions and mm-hmm. decisions and ensures that ecclesiastical obedience has a truly Christological character. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we are all mm-hmm. obedient to Christ and to the living tradition of the church actually is an antidote for kind of just the priest or the bishop doing willingly whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when it's lived out, you know, ideally. And then finally, something that gets brought up is the idea of, of conscience, that you always have to follow your conscience, mm-hmm. which is true, but... So, um, because... Um, how do I want to put this? Some people will say, you know, what the what the priest is saying when he decides that uh, we're only receiving communion under one species now. Mm-hmm. The priest decided that. Well, that goes against my conscience to blah, 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 blah. It's important to realize what your conscience is and what it's not. Yeah, that's A not lot of times, just because, just because you're cranky about something doesn't mean it's your conscience. Yeah. But also, it's very important to realize that if you haven't done due diligence to learn what the church teaches and what the church says, if you haven't done due, due diligence to form your conscience well and in the spirit of the church, then you following, quote unquote, your conscience, you're still liable to sin. Right. It doesn't take away the sin just because you're, quote unquote, following your conscience. It has to be well formed. So I think it's another thing to like bring up in the course of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, again, that's why I think the, the 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 key judgment is a moral judgment, right? If a priest is doing something that is uh, that objectively is an, immoral, yeah, or a moral offense, yes, that is when you challenge. But if yes. it's a if it's a thing a, a taste and policy that is within his domain to do it, right? Again, if mm-hmm. a priest came in and said, "You know what, guys? Every every other week we're going to have a, a lay communion service so I can have a weekend off." That yeah, no. is actually not within his rights, right? Like mm-hmm. we have to do those in my parish when I have to be away sometimes, but I will only, I do I do everything I can to avoid them as much as possible. Right. Like people know I'm going to make sure you have mass as much as possible. There may be one or two weekends once or twice a year where you're not going to have that. That's different, right? But if he's like, right. ah, I just don't feel like working. Yeah, that's that's that. I would say that's immoral, right? Yeah, he's not definitely. fulfilling the he's not fil- <laughs> he's not fulfilling the duties of his office. Or yeah. Uh, yeah, or he's in an illicit relationship, or he is uh, he's saying, uh, "You went, Joe, why don't you come up and do the Eucharistic prayer today?" Right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. They have to be very serious, folks. If they're not yeah. serious, you speak your piece, and the priest, God willing, will hear you. But if he has a judgment that's contrary to your desires, this is not a matter of conscience, and this is where obedience is actually a very important thing because most priests, I would say. 
I want to say at least 95% of priests want the good of the church and the yeah. good of their people. So when they're making a decision, they hear you, but they're not always going to agree with you. Correct. Sorry, I just, I think Siri just got, I, I got, uh, what is it? Siri's telling us it's time to wrap up there the podcast, we are. I think. There's a lot more to say. It's a very, uh, there is, there is. And there's, like, I had other, uh, maybe we'll talk about in what way is it appropriate or in what ways can fraternal correction happen between people and priests and mm. priests and bishops. Yeah. But that's all for another thing. I think we did a good job, at least at an intro to obedience. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So thank you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me at Father Sharapa on Twitter. You can find me at FR Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Peace. God bless.